0: We'll <laughs>
1: we've just suffered through a heat wave and uh, we're on the other side of it now and we're getting back to some typical summer weather and uh, I got a lot of work to do so uh, everything is good
0: <laughs> yeah I'm glad the, the heat, heat waves are terrible but there's nothing you can do about yeah. it, it's better than a cold wave
1: I I tend to disagree I, I I take the cold much easier than I can take the heat
0: Mm, The old saying, you can always throw a sweater on, you can't take off all your clothes. And after you take off all your clothes, there's nowhere to go. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, I see what your point is. I'm just not a cold person.
1: Yeah, well, growing up here in the Northeast, as I did, uh, I got used to the winters. They didn't really bother me. The only thing that bothers me is driving around in snow and ice.
0: Yeah, ice is terrible. That's scary. Your car can spin so easy. Uh. Uh-huh. Um, so tell us a little bit uh, about uh, you know, how you became uh interested in writing and 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 books and collecting and that. Were you a collector as a child? What kind of books did, did you read as a kid?
1: yeah i was uh i was born with the collector gene i'm convinced that collectors are born not made you 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 either have the gene or you don't and i started collecting i i mean serious collecting a lot of kids go through a phase of collecting but i collected fairly seriously uh, starting at nine years old i was collecting trading cards you know baseball cards and whatnot and um then I graduated to comic books by the time I was age 10, put together quite a library of those over over uh, a number of years. And then, of course, gradually, since I'd always been a voracious reader, I, I started collecting um, paperback books, uh, basically anything I could afford on the allowance I had. I remember uh, one of my big favorites as a kid was Edgar Rice Burroughs. Now, at the time, in the early 60s, around the time I turned 10, there was a big revival of interest in Burroughs, and there were two different companies that were putting out his novels, the Tarzan novels and the John Carter of Mars novels. One of them was Ballantine Books. The other was Ace Books. Well, the Ballantine Books were essential because they published the series in order, and uh, I felt that was important to read them that way. But the Ace books had better covers. They had more pulpy, action-filled covers. So I started buying them both. And I remember one time my father, who was a child of the Depression, he he never had much use for buying books anyway. As far as he was concerned, he could get whatever he wanted to read in in the local public library. And he felt that once he'd read a book, there was no need to revisit it. So he couldn't understand why I wanted to spend my hard-earned money on on books. And when he saw that I had two copies, in some cases, of the same Tarzan books or the same John Carter of Mars books, he speculated to me. He says, well, I don't know, maybe your allowance is too generous if you can afford to buy two copies of the same book. So he, he was kidding, but he it, it took him a long time to understand that I was a collector. And I remember the first time I came home with an expensive comic book, uh, a vintage comic book from the forties. And by that time they were already collector's items. And I paid the grand sum of $3 for an issue of Captain Marvel Adventures. And uh, my father was so furious, he didn't speak to me for the rest of the day. He, He was just, he felt that I had been taken. Now, years later, when I started selling comic books and making big profits on them, then suddenly he realized that there was something to the collectibles uh, field. But, uh, yeah, I was always a collector, and my I, I just went into different things as my interests matured and as I got more money. Um, and eventually I graduated to hardcover first editions of, of uh, literature and uh vintage pulp magazines from the 20s and 30s. And I still collect those things today.
0: And uh in literature, do you have um a favorite author um and a favorite genre?
1: Well, I I have to say uh that um for somebody who's uh as reasonably well educated as I am, my tastes are a appallingly trashy I have never outgrown my fascination with pulp fiction which started when I was 10 years old you know all the Tarzan stories were originally printed in pulp magazines before they were published in book form so um I've always enjoyed adventure stories mystery stories always been a big mystery fan I started reading um the um Harry Mason novels by Earl Stanley Gardner, mostly because I I was a big fan of the TV show. But from there, I went to other characters, the Charlie Chan books, the Philo Vance books, the Nero Wolfe books. And then uh, when I was uh, just entering my teen years, I became very fascinated with science fiction. So I started, as a matter of fact, I was a member at 13 years old of the Science Fiction Book Club where you pay the yearly fee, and every month they sent you a book that they had selected for members only. So I became very interested in science fiction. I was a big fan of Ray Bradbury, who, of course, also got his start in the pulp magazines, and Isaac Asimov, another pulp art. You know, most of the great science fiction writers of the 50s and 60s, which is when I grew up, had got their starts in in the pulps. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon, A. E. Van Vogt, L. Ron Hubbard, they were all graduates of the pulp magazines, which were basically what we, what they called penny a word markets. They uh, didn't pay much at all, but they were valuable training grounds. And some of the authors who wrote for the pulps prolifically went on to much bigger and better things. But in terms of my other favorite authors, I'm a big fan of the British thriller writer Edgar Wallace, um, Talbot Mundy, who wrote a lot of great adventure novels in the teens and 20s, probably best remembered for his novel King of the Khyber Rifles, and um, Burroughs, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Ellery Queen, the mystery writer. Uh, is a big favorite. And, of course, I still have my collections of first edition hardcovers of most of these guys, too.
0: Um, I noticed that most of your favorites are men. You don't have any favorite women writers?
1: Oh, let's see. In the science fiction field, I've always been partial to Lee Brackett, who uh, started writing for Wore Weird Tales, and she was a very big science fiction writer for the pulps in the early 40s and into the 50s. She later drifted into uh, screenwriting. <laughs> she was one of the screenwriters of the classic uh, Who Done It, The Big Sleep, based on Raymond Chandler's novel, the version with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. She was one of the screenwriters of that, along with William Faulkner, and she kept up really uh, as long as she lived she she kept one foot in the hollywood arena and one foot in the literary arena and the last thing that um the last screenplay of hers to be published was the empire strikes back the second star wars movie she actually died before the movie was released
0: great writer she's a wonderful writer
1: yeah she's a great writer and i'm also very fond of cl moore who deliberately used her initials because she felt it would be easier for her to break into the field of fantasy fiction if she pretended to be a man but her real name was Catherine Moore and she also started in Weird Tales magazine and she wrote some of the pioneering stories of what we would call space opera uh she wrote a stories about a guy named Northwest Smith who you know, kind of an interstellar adventurer of the uh, Han Solo type from Star Wars. This was back in the 30s she created him. And uh, she also went on to do some much better work and she eventually married another science fiction writer named Henry Kuttner. And they used to write together. As a matter of fact, when one would get stuck on a story, the other one would pitch in and then they collaborated They had a couple of different pen names. The most frequently used is uh, Lewis Paget. And again, they did a lot of work in the pulps, and they graduated. When the pulps were gradually supplanted by paperback books, paperback original novels in the early 50s, all these people shifted over from the pulps to paperbacks. The money was slightly better, and of course, uh, in those markets, uh, you got royalties, which you did not get writing for the pulp magazines you got a flat fee for the story whereas if you wrote a book it was just like doing a hardcover book you would get an advance for the book against royalties that would follow
0: um i'm i also like that period and one of the things i remember is that there was um they made a lot of money from serialization and magazines like Agatha yep. Christie and Ladies' Home Journal and Ellery Queen and Colliers and things like that uh what do you collect any of those, or have you been able to find them
1: <laughs> i I collect those things on a scattershot basis, mostly according to my favorite authors and stories uh Ellery Queen is another example of a guy that that it's actually. Ellery Queen, for those who don't know, is actually two people. They were two cousins, cousins. who grew up in Newark, uh, New York, New York. And um, they collaborated on on a book to win a prize in a contest. Well, they didn't win the prize in the contest, but the publisher who was throwing the contest liked the book enough to publish it. And that kicked them off on their career. And just as you're saying, they realized early on that there was good money to be made in trying to get stories published in these, what they called the slick magazines. These were the family-oriented magazines that had a lot of advertising, Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, the various women's magazines, Ladies Home Journal, Cosmopolitan, which in those days was kind of a general, I mean, it was it was geared to women, but it was not what it became years later in the Helen Gurley Brown era. So uh, they were all great fiction markets, and they paid a lot of money. The American magazine was another one. So uh, I collect, for example, Queen's appearances in in the slick magazines that you're talking about. And, of course, they were very high-paying markets. I mean, you know, a story that you would probably get $100 for in a pulp magazine, you could get $1,000 for in one of the top slicks, obviously because they had huge circulations. And if you were popular with the readers of a magazine, it was worth the editor's while to pay you more money to keep the readers happy. So those were very important magazines. Every pulp writer who ever lived, whether he was willing to admit it or not, they all wanted to crack the slick magazines. Some of them did. Some of them had great success. Some of them never really got out of the pulps. And the interesting thing is that there are some of the writers who did graduate to the slicks are are better remembered for their pulp work than for their slick work. And a perfect example is a guy named Frederick Nebel, who wrote a lot of detective stories. Now he wrote primarily for two, the two top crime pulps. One was called Black Mask. The other one was called Dime Detective. The stuff that he wrote for Black Mask and Dime Detective is still in print and is still being collected. And the people who collect original pulp magazines, Neville is, is a key guy for a lot of collectors of detective pulps. Whereas all the stuff that he was proud of, all this conventional superficial romantic fiction that was published in the women's magazines that he got a lot of money for, there isn't a word of that in print. None of it was reprinted in book form. Uh, it's It's totally forgotten now. And yet he felt that that was the stuff, you know, judging by the material success it got him, he was proudest of that stuff, but it's the pulp stuff for which he's best remembered. And there, are, there are several other writers who fit in the, in the same category.
0: It's interesting because actually uh, uh, some of the women's magazines uh, have some really serious science fiction, um, like um, Good Housekeeping had original Stepford Wives when they serialized um not huh? necessarily romance <laughs> yeah
1: well there were there were a bunch of things uh, um ray bradbury occasionally sold to the slicks but um he was primarily a pulp guy and as a matter of fact some of his most famous books and i'm especially thinking of the martian chronicles and the illustrated man they uh, originated as short stories in pulp magazines and he coupled them together and did a little quick rewriting of some of them and uh, put them out in, in book form and made a lot of money uh, for him. And those books are all still in print today, but very few people realize that they uh, started out as as pulp stories.
0: That's true. That's true. I love Ray Bradbury. I met him. He was a lovely man, very sweet. Yes, he. Uh huh. Very kind. In fact, he, the first time I met him, he he came to my uh, college to lecture, and he was supposed to lecture on the Martian Chronicles because they were coming out as a movie. And what he wanted to talk about was dinosaurs. So that's what he talked about. <laughs> he did not talk about his book the entire hour. He was so cute.
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of odd because usually it was, I mean... My experiences with him, which were very limited, were that if you asked him targeted questions, he would stay on topic. But if you gave him, if you gave him a chance to go off on a tangent, he would. Yeah, but, he,
0: um, he just was in the mood to talk about. He, I, I think he was researching something, and he wow. just really was into it. And he just wanted to talk about dinosaurs. Everybody loved it though. It was it wasn't like it, nobody was nobody left.
1: <laughs> right. Well, he was a great rock on tour and a great conversationalist and um he did he did very well at personal appearances and lectures on the lecture circuit, which he did really as long as he as long as he could. Finally, ill health overtook him. But um, even when he was confined to a wheelchair, as long as he could get someone to drive him, he would he would still make appearances at conventions and and uh, colleges and and uh, weigh in on on you know the issues of the day. He was a, he was a great guy, and oddly enough, for a guy who's best remembered as a science fiction writer, Ray was very skeptical about science. He uh, one of the themes that underlay many of his stories is the effect of science on people who uh have not developed uh emotionally or intellectually enough to cope with the rapid changing technology. So so there was in lots of Ray's stories uh, there was that uh that um undergirding, you might call it. Um, that that made him a little more of a, a skeptic. He was not he was not one, for example, to go into what is called hard science and science fiction, which is uh, you know elaborate descriptions of scientific hypotheses or or you know the mechanical workings of various spaceships. Or this Ray never went in for that kind of thing. He was always interested in the human condition and the effects of future technology on humanity.
0: I also found it an interesting dichotomy that the great Asimov, who is one of the most brilliant minds as any fiction and non-fiction writer that we've ever had, he never went on a plane, he never went on a boat, he was totally claustrophobic when it came to anything like that and he was scared of several things. And yet he wrote beautifully about people going into space. I thought that was an interesting thing. I, I, I did When I when he talked about it, he was very humorous about it, but it was a little shocking to me. Were you shocked when you heard about it?
1: No, as a matter of fact, I knew Isaac Asimov a little bit. Um, uh, it's too long a story to go into how we met, but I um, I did have several conversations with him. He was quite the character. He was another guy who was the life of the party type, and um, brilliant man, as you say, another great conversationalist, although he was a better talker than he was a listener, and um, really a remarkable character. But you know, some of these guys are like that. The funny thing is that unlike Ray, who really had no, he really didn't have any more background in science other than typical high school education uh, in it. Asimov was was remarkably well schooled and wrote as I'm sure you know he wrote a lot of non-fiction books on various aspects of science and um did did incredibly well with them.
0: Oh yeah, my my that was my father's hero. I have all of my father's collection of Asimov and some of them were signed. So yeah, I'm quite aware of that. Um <laughs> he he Talked about and did you ever hear uh, Gene Roddenberry talk about when he showed the cage at a convention and someone was yakking and yakking in the background and he said that he told them to please shut up my my pilot is on and the, uh, another person who was like running the convention said congratulations you just insulted Isaac Asimov I thought that was the greatest story and and he was there when it was on a record. A record for the younger people is a big black thing that's round that looks like licorice that plays audio. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, and Isaac goes, yeah that sounds like me. I mean he thought it was hilarious. (laughs) But I just wondered, um, he he, he just loved to uh, have conversations. I mean it must have been really cool to have a conversation with him because apparently he was very intensely talking to the people he was having a conversation with. Did you feel that?
1: Oh, sure. He loved loved to be the center of attention, and he loved to have an audience. And he was one of the few people that, I say few people, I, I, I shouldn't quantify it. I mean, he was one of the people who, especially when he's talking on a subject that he's really familiar with, is never boring, he never really, I mean he can have an hour long conversation with you, but it's not the kind of conversation that you would, uh, you know, be looking at your watch surreptitiously trying to figure out how you could get get away from him. Mike was very, very, uh, um, he he, he was what people used to call a character. (laughs) He was occasionally funny, occasionally he was inappropriate, he's kind of legendary in science fiction circles, saying some things to women and behaving towards women in ways that would make him a pariah today um, people put up with it sixty years ago fifty years ago but um, uh, he he did have his moments but it, when I was talking with him it was at the Players Club in New York City I would uh, I was being proposed for membership and and um, the my sponsor would bring me when he'd go, and Ike was a frequent guest in the lounge there, the downstairs lounge, and that's where we'd have these conversations. Well, the Players Club had a lot of world-class conversations, let me tell you, and
0: uh,
1: Ike more than held his own. He was, uh, he, he was at home in any circle, and he could discuss very fluidly, practically any subject that was being brought up down there. And the players, despite its reputation as strictly a show business group, um, by the time I was proposed for membership, they were welcoming artists. They were welcoming writers, uh, you know, uh, other professional people and communicators. Well, that's how I got invited because I was a journalist and my friend was uh, a journalist too. So, uh, as you can imagine, there are a lot of very articulate, very intelligent people in that rarefied atmosphere. And Asimov always, always distinguished himself, and he will always insisted on being called Ike. Isaac was strictly a byline. Everybody knew him as
0: Ike. Um, I'm not from New York, so I'm just, and a lot of my listeners are not. Is the Players Club a Gentleman's club? Is that what it is? I I don't know. I've never I've never heard of it before.
1: It it was for many years. It started um, um, back in the mid-19th century. As a matter of fact, John Wilkes Booth was a member. And um, it was primarily a gentleman's club for many, many years. Their their main headquarters is in Gramercy Park, which is a very beautiful neighborhood in New York, very old neighborhood. And um, uh, they went... Co-ed, so to speak, around I want to say 30 years ago. I don't know exactly, but they were not co-ed when I was being sponsored, and that was that was in the early 90s. So I guess it was just not long after that. It was, women were were brought as guests and dinner companions at at functions of the club, but the there were not women members in those days. But really? there were sub.
0: All the way in the 90s, I mean, because I heard that women in the 70s were breaking into those gentlemen's clubs. I'm sort of surprised that it took so long for women to finally break in. Like, in the 90s, it still wasn't co-ed. Wow. I wondered, how did you get involved with um, uh, different things? But one of the things I want to know about is the Writers of the Future. How did you get involved with
1: them? Um, John Goodwin, who is the president of Galaxy Press, which is the company that mounts this contest every year and publishes the Writers of the Future books, John, uh, when they began reprinting the fiction of L. Ron Hubbard, the pulp fiction of L. Ron Hubbard, John came to a couple of the conventions for pulp collectors. There are two major conventions in the country. One of them is held in Chicago. The other one used to be held in um, Ohio, is now in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. John, doing a little market research, brought some samples of, of the books and set up a booth at one of these conventions to try and gauge the interest in pulp collectors for these reprints that they were planning to publish. So as part of that, we, he and I got talking. You know, he pulled me aside as I was walking down the aisle. Said, "We you know what do you think of this stuff? What are you doing?" So we got to talking, and he he wanted me to uh, film an interview with him. He says, "You know, we're gonna we're gonna put together a little interview of about Pulp Fiction and about Hubbard's role in Pulp Fiction. And do you mind being interviewed for this?" And I said, "No, of course not. I had a book that was recently out." Uh, on Pulp Fiction, so I said, as long as I can plug my book, that's fine. So anyway, I, I saw John several times after that, and I, I won't say that we're close friends, but we're we're friends and colleagues. And he uh, he called me up a couple years ago and said we're. He told me all about the writers of the future, which they were also calling the writers and illustrators of the future. And he says, look, we've been doing this for 35 years, and we have this contest, and we're looking to promote the genre of science fiction, and we're looking to find new talents. So what we do is we have this contest where we invite uh, would-be writers to submit their short stories, their science fiction short stories, and um, we read all the entries, and from those we select a number of stories that we'll publish in book form. And on top of that, they fly the winners of the contest, the ones who are chosen to be included in the book, to Hollywood every year, which is where they're based, by the way, that's where Galaxy is based. And um, they have this lavish awards banquet. So even though it's a forward-looking event and a forward-looking approach to science fiction, you know, primarily appealing to young talent and and interested in new ideas and new story concepts, they decided that uh, for the 2019 banquet two years ago, that they wanted to have a keynote address that would look backward at the history of science fiction, and especially Pope science fiction, because that's where Hubbard got his start. So John called me and he says, look, I, you know, uh, I've talked to you enough. Now I know what you can do. Would you, I know you're a terrific writer. Uh, would you be interested in writing a keynote speech and delivering this speech? So I said, I'd be happy to. He flew me out, first class accommodations. As a matter of fact, I've done many speaking engagements at various events, libraries, universities, uh conventions you name it but i've never been treated any better than i was treated by the galaxy press people so it was april 2019 and i wrote this speech and uh, i went out there and delivered it it was a fascinating experience for me because the event was being live streamed and this was a first class i mean they mounted this like it was the oscar like it was the academy awards and they even went to the trouble they had a big facility in hollywood And they even went to the trouble of getting a camera crane so that they could make the guy sitting up in the top of the crane would swoop over the audience so they could get these wide panoramic shots of the audience, which was about 400 people strong. Because in addition to the winners, and I I can't remember the exact number, I want to say that there were 24 writers and 24 artists, but I'm not sure it was quite that many. But there were a lot of them, and of course their works were all going to be published in the book. And this was the 35th annual event. So they, of course, were all there. And a lot of the, each award was presented by a different luminary in the science fiction world, a different professional science fiction author. So uh, it was a very illustrious event, and I was uh, uh, among great company. And I did the speech, and it was very well received, I'm happy to say. Afterwards, I I got a look at the book. They unveiled the book, The Writers and Illustrators of the Future. And I glanced at some of the stories. I didn't read them all word for word. But from what I could see, they were all remarkable and uh, very, very talented people. And some of them, I think, depending on their drive, will go a long way. And this is now their first published credit. Now, in addition to winning whatever the prize, there's a cash prize of some kind, but in addition to winning the prize, they have the satisfaction of seeing their work in a book. So every year, uh, John mounts the contest and he's got submissions coming in all during the year. And um, I believe he told me that they're now up to, they've had submissions from 170 countries. And, I mean, that's just phenomenal. And as a matter of fact, the event itself was live streamed. And I think John told me it was going to something like 177 countries uh, who who could get on the internet and see it live as it was happening. So it was an interesting experience for me because of all the speeches I've done, I usually usually speak off the cuff. For this one, uh, because the event was so tightly timed, I had to write the speech and perform it according to the the amount of time I had, and so they put it on a teleprompter they had a lot of a lot of even the the uh the the speeches by the presenters of the awards were were written in advance and put on a teleprompter so this was my first experience at handling a teleprompter, which uh, I'm happy to say I did very well I didn't know if that would make me any nervous or not. Generally I'm I'm not nervous at all at these functions. But the idea of speaking to a, a potential audience in a, in hundred and seventy seven countries and reading on a teleprompter was a little intimidating until I did the rehearsal. And at the rehearsal I realized this is this is not a big deal. And uh I can do this. So like I say it went off very well I got to meet a lot of nice people, and I got to renew my acquaintances with some very nice people in the science fiction community that I had met previously. And um, it, it was it was a great event. And um, frankly, I wish I had an excuse to go back every year because what I what John and Galaxy Press is doing, I think, is absolutely invaluable. Because you see, in the days of Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and L. Ron Hubbard and all these people in the pulp world. The Pulps were considered the great training ground. I mean, yes, they didn't pay a lot of money, but they were invaluable training for writers who who honed their craft working on these these cheaply paying stories, often working uh, on very tight deadlines. You know, a lot of times an editor would call a writer up and say, hey, somebody didn't give me a story I was expecting, and I got to fill a 5,000 word hole tomorrow. Can you write 5,000 words between now and tomorrow morning? You know, and these guys would do it because, especially in the Depression, money was hard to come by, and when they had a guaranteed sale, they hopped to it. Well, you don't have that kind of training today, and most of the slick magazines, even, that publish fiction are gone. I mean, the Saturday Evening Post is gone, Collier's is gone, the American magazine is gone, Cosmopolitan is a lot different than it used to be. You occasionally have fiction in some some higher tone magazines, like say the Atlantic or Harper's, Um, but the markets are few and far between. So what John is doing is he's giving voice to a whole new generation of writers. more than one generation now, it's it's two generations, because I believe this year they're up to number 37. So, um, and like I say, he gets very talented people and they get hundreds of submissions in a year So, obviously, they're picking the best ones, and and the ones that were in the book that I read, uh, like I say, even though I didn't read them word for word, the ones that I scanned quickly, I mean, I could tell that these were very, very talented people. So, it's really a wonderful thing that he's doing. Now, it started as the Writers of the Future. At some point, they made it illustrators, too, and... um, You know, at the beginning, 35 years ago, a lot of the great science fiction writers were still alive, and a lot of the old-timers that I'm talking about, veterans of the pulp era. So those were the original judges. Now they have since, they've been around for so long that one of the judges at the event that I went to, that I spoke at, was actually, had won one of the awards the first year, 35 years before and and 35 years later, he was an accomplished professional with a couple hundred books to his name. Um, so we, I, I can't say too much for it. I, I think it's a phenomenal thing. And, of course, the book is extremely handsomely put together. It's well printed. They spend a lot of time and effort on marketing it. And another thing is that the award ceremony is not just a standalone event. It's kind of the climax of an entire week where these new writers that have been flown out to collect their awards get to participate in workshops with the pros who are also at the you know at the ceremony presenting them with their awards so it's just a phenomenal experience for these people
0: uh... we don't have a lot of time uh... do you have any kind of books or any kind of media that are coming out that you'd like people to know about
1: yes well my uh... my website which is called Murania Press, M-U-R-A-N-I-A, followed by the word press.com. I published a magazine called Blood and Thunder, which was the um, uh, sort of a a journal covering aspects of American popular culture of the late 19th and early 20th century, including pulp magazines, but other storytelling forms as well. Vintage movies of the silent era old time radio drama, uh the story papers and dime novels of the nineteenth century. And uh my biggest seller is a book called The Blood and Thunder Guide to Pulp Fiction, which has now um I forget how many countries I've sold sold it in now, but uh uh that that of course is kind of a, a one a one-volume compendium of everything you ever need to know about pulp fiction. Discusses all the big authors, the big magazines, uh, the, the famous stories, the whole the whole pulp era. And um, that's, uh, like I say, that's always that's been my most popular book. Since, as a matter of fact, that's the book that John saw, that he bought, and it convinced him that I was the right guy to do this speech for him. And I have another book coming out from a different publisher from IDW coming out this September called The Art of Pulp Fiction. And the title aside, what it really is is it's kind of an art art history of vintage paperbacks because paperbacks gradually took over the pulps. Um, The American paperback industry didn't really get going until the World War II years, and but they eventually took over, and a lot of the writers, as I said earlier, gravitated to those. So that book will be coming out in September at a bookstore near you and also on Amazon. Uh, This beautiful book is being printed in China. It's got hundreds of covers, and I've I've written fact-filled captions for every cover, and I have uh, the chapters broken up by genre, Western, mystery, science fiction, horror, adventure, and, um, that was a really a fun project to do. It took me a long time to do it, but, uh, that is finally coming out. And, um, like I say, everything else, everything else I've got is at Murania Press. Cause I try to sell in addition to the other outlets I have like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, I try to sell everything on my website because if nothing else, that's one way people can get signed copies. So uh, my Murania Press website is the place to go.
0: Okay. And um, are you on social media? And what would your handles be on the different social media that you're on?
1: You know, I haven't gotten into that. I'm kind of a Luddite. And um, the, the short answer is no. I, I have a personal Facebook page, Ed Hulse, and I always promote my stuff. Oh, uh, Murania Press also has a Facebook page. Pardon me. I forgot all about that. Murania Press has its own page and then I have my page and uh, but I'm not on Twitter I'm not on Instagram I'm not on any of that stuff I probably should be but I'm not
0: okay Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come on my show thank you very much Ed
1: it was my pleasure Sherry
0: thank you and thank you for chatting with Sherry